Hi everyone, I'm Gary Knoll. Nice to have you with us today. You've all heard the term, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Well, that's true, and we've been able to show what's in an apple, in an apple skin, the quercetin, the polyphenols, but now we can add, an apple a day keeps the stroke away. This is from Wageningen University in the Netherlands, a recent study from researchers at the university published in Stroke, the peer-reviewed journal, indicates fruits with white flesh, such as apples and pears, can reduce the risk of stroke by 52%. This study compared vegetables and fruits of different colors to determine which would be most beneficial in preventing a stroke. The fruits and vegetables were broken down in, into their different colors, in cabbages, lettuces, and other dark green leafy vegetables, the orange and yellow colors, most of which were citrus fruits, and red and purple colors, most of which were red vegetables, and white colors, apples and pears, making up 55% of the white fruits. Well, the follow-up period was 10 years, and the researchers documented 233 strokes. They observed that strokes were not reduced in any significant manner by the consumption of orange, yellow, red, and purple fruits. However, good news, white fruits were found to lower the risk of developing a stroke by 52%. Mind you, that's without thinning the blood using vitamin C and green vegetables like celery and cucumber and the juice and vitamin E and quercetin. These also thin the blood and reduce the risk of stroke. So that's really good. There were 20,000 adults in this study, average 41 years of age, none who've had cardiovascular disease when the study began. So let's just put this into perspective. An apple is easy to get. An organic apple, all the better. And uh, juicing the apple is good. Eating the apple is fine. But have one apple per day. And that alone could mean 52% reduction in stroke. Now from Tohoku University, the test with volunteers showed wasabi, W-A-S-A-B-I, that's the Japanese mustard, improves short and long-term memory in older people. Now, we don't use wasabi very much in the United States. In fact, most people probably haven't used it at all. But it's a powder, comes from a root, they add a little water to it, makes a paste, and then you put a little bit, when I say a little bit, I mean about this, um, as much as a kernel of corn on a bite of food. You smear it over, and uh, we know it mainly because it's used in the nori rolls, where the nori seaweed is, then you put your sliced cucumber and your brown rice and sprouts, whatever you want to put it in. In Japan, they use sushi. Um, but this way, you put that in, and boy, does that, you feel it. Uh, but it's very healing. So a team of cognitive health and aging research specialists affiliated with a large number of institutions in Japan has found that ingesting wasabi can help improve both long and short-term memory retention in older adults. And this was published in the previous journal, Nutrients. By the way, wasabi was not grown in the United States. It's primarily grown in Japan and Russia in the Far East. And it has a green rhizome, that's R-H-I-Z-O-M-E, that's some likened to horseradish. Kind of tastes like horseradish. And... Uh, but horseradish is also good. 
in both of these, horseradish and wasabi have anti-inflammatory benefits. And uh, courtesy of 6-methylsulfinylhexyl, this is an isothionate, or better known as 6-MSITC. These are natural chemicals which have been shown to have very powerful anti-cancer and antioxidant properties. So, just let you know one more thing we can add to the diet that can help us. Now, standing blood pressure test, meaning standing up, normally people sit down or they lie down, is found to be more accurate in detecting hypertension, University of Texas Southwest Medical Center. So measuring blood pressure while patients are standing rather than sitting can improve the accuracy of the reading. And this was published in scientific reports. And that could mean that a lot of people who may have elevated blood pressure, but it doesn't read it right when they're lying down or sitting, but when they're standing, could actually show them that it's a better blood pressure screening procedure and can detect some of that you know, blood pressure if you wouldn't otherwise know it, that you're elevated. So again, uh, lots of ways to measure it, but do it standing next time. Now, all of our mar- uh, New York are marijuana shops. Okay, it should be legal. And there's thousands upon thousands of studies. Last time I checked, there were 22,000 studies in the library of medicine on marijuana, and mainly the oils of marijuana and what they do to help people have stroke, people have lung cancer, brain cancer, seizures, among other things. Now, that's a medicinal marijuana. That is not the kind that you would smoke. It doesn't have the injurious effects. However, most people smoke marijuana, and it should never have been criminalized. But here's the downside. This is brand new. You're going to increase your risk of a heart attack, heart failure. Yes, and this is according to MedStar Health in Baltimore and the Nazareth Hospital in Philadelphia. So if you smoke marijuana, not excessively, just moderately, on a regular basis, you raise the risk of heart failure, stroke, and heart attack, even after accounting for other cardiovascular risk factors like type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, and obesity. Two separate studies prove this. They tested 156,999 individuals who were free from heart failure at the time they enrolled in the research program. And then they checked them four years later, that's 45 months. And wow, I mean, they took into account alcohol use and, and all these other factors, but just the marijuana smoking itself caused increase in heart attacks and strokes and heart failure. Now, we've already known that it can cause delusional paranoid psychosis. But originally they said, well, that's transient. Yeah, and it's also not transient. If you smoke enough marijuana, you can spend the rest of your life in a chronic psychosis and paranoia state. Three people in my life who were close to me all had lots of marijuana, and they all ended up being able to function. I mean, literally, they couldn't function. And it was sad because I'd known one since I came to New York, wonderful person, and uh, everyone liked him. And he just smoked all the time. Chilled him out. And then one day, he was in Hawaii where his son lives. And his son called me and said, 
I don't know what to do with that. Uh, he's paranoid about everything. Uh, he can't communicate normally. He makes scenes. Uh, he does the strangest things. And uh, what do I do? I said, well, send him over and I'll see if I can't help him. He's a friend. I'm going to help my friend. Never turn your back on your friends. So he flew in and uh, he was here for under two hours. Two hours. And I explained what we can do to help him detoxify from the marijuana, which I had helped other people detoxify. Mind you, I was head of addiction control at Chicago Hospital for a long time. Right across the street, we were affiliated with the uh, uh, with the Institute of Applied Biology, where I was a senior research fellow. So I had all the research in the world. Some of the smartest people on the planet were, were scientists there. So I could consult with them, and then we had a hospital. So I said, I worked on detoxifying from every drug you can imagine. We'll do it. It'll take a little time. How long? A month to two months on a daily basis. He said, good. So I went in to do my radio show, came back. About an hour and a half later, he was gone. Went back to the airport, took a flight right back to Hawaii on the same day that he arrived. And he was paranoid. And when I got his son, his son said, well, he saw people on the property, you know, and he knew they were out to get him. No one was on the property. So I know firsthand the downside. But the trouble is we have a cultural psychosis of obedience to pleasure. That's a nice title. I had to write that down before I forget it for a book. But it's true. We Everybody thought they were really hip and, and uh, smoking marijuana and then taking psychedelics. Well, remember what happened just two weeks ago when a pilot was taking magic mushrooms and then in the middle of a flight decided to grab the control and fly the plane into the ground? But fortunately, they stopped them. And by the way, 5,000 other pilots ended up finding that they falsified information about their health condition after they took the vaccines. A lot of them had myocarditis. And then recently a guy pilot had a heart attack and died on a flight. But that wasn't the only one. I mentioned over 12 different people, pilots, dying after they got their vaccines. So, no, I'm getting a camper. When I come back to New York, I'm driving on RV. You know, I'll go through the hassle and I'll enjoy the ride, but I'm not flying anymore. Because you don't know who's in the cockpit, and when they already lied, then I don't trust them. Anyhow, just to be aware, if you smoke marijuana or know someone who does, it's their right to smoke it. It's also their right to know that they can have a heart attack, a stroke, a cardiac arrest, or arrhythmia if you use marijuana. All right? 28,535 cannabis users with existing cardiovascular risk factors, meaning diabetes, high cholesterol, and boy, does that increase your risk in that group. So, just sharing that with you. Now, finally, from Norwegian University of Science and Technology, regular exercise helps people avoid the need for antidepressants. Well, that's a big deal when you consider how many tens of millions of Americans use antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication, known as antipsychotic medication, on a daily basis. And the pharmaceutical industry wants you to be a patient for life, but they don't tell you how long you're going to live. Oh, and by the way, what does 
What is the one common denominator in all these mass shootings? Over 90% were on psychiatric medications. But because the politics and the money behind this is so formidable, we're talking about billions of dollars. And also we're talking about who's the number one income producer for all television networks? Radio. Big Pharma. So they have a lot of persuasion where they can have a scientist make a call and say, before you report that that mass shooter was on one of our drugs, uh, there's no real science to back that up. There have been no studies. Well, there have been observational studies. I have one. In fact, for Manufacturing Madness, my new documentary on psychiatry and mental health, we looked at going clear back to when mass shootings started. Isn't, isn't it interesting? We didn't have mass shootings in the population in all of America for decades and decades until the anti-depression, anti-psychotic medication. Because look at the side effects. Number one side effect of antidepressive drugs, depression. Number one side effect of anti-anxiety medication, anxiety. But then acute anxiety and uh, psychosis and paranoid and delusions and aggressive behavior. And uh, I even went out, we went out to Colorado to interview all the people involved in Columbine, the massacre. And they all said the same thing. It wasn't the gun that was, that was responsible. These were normal teenagers. We talked to all the people, the parents, friends, schoolmates, until Eric Harris started taking large amounts of Effexor, and then they went crazy. But we won't talk about that because media doesn't believe that. But we do. Just want to share that with you. All right? So do your exercise. It can help you overcome the depression symptoms. That's the latest on health and healing. We're going to take a break. Got some really interesting stuff coming your way. And one is going to be a philosophy lesson. And the other is going to be a world conscious lesson with Noam Chomsky. So we got some heavy stuff. Deep diving in a moment. Please stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. Yesterday, I ran a little short of time. I was trying to explain a phenomena. And I'm sure most of you understood what I was saying in the context, that here we have world leaders from all around the world, the United States and Canada and Great Britain and Germany and, uh, and other countries who are saying support Israel and Netanyahu against the Palestinian people. And if, uh, if you wonder, well, should we care about the Palestinian civilians being killed? Well, it's just, look, if they voted for Hamas, they deserve what they get. That's the words I'm hearing. Okay, that's what they feel and that's what they believe. But what about the fact that every one of those countries and others, like Belgium, supported colonization, and in that colonization, they supported genocide? None were criticized. Nobody lost their job. Nobody had to apologize. Certainly nobody went to jail, including the royal family that should have, as well as members of parliament that were supporting all of their efforts. I'll just give you one example because I ran out of time and I just wanted to finish what I was thinking, just to show you how it's Orwellian, where the truth now becomes a lie. 
Those who want peace promote war. Those who want justice promote totalitarian fascist injustice. The media, which is supposed to be open and honest, is biased and captured. Everything is its opposite today. For example, when we were told that the Indian famine was unavoidable, not true. Go back and do your homework. Look at one of the most heinous individuals in human history. He's, he's right up there with Adolf Hitler, and yet he is considered the most cherished and respected person in British history, and that is Winston Churchill. The man was a genocidalist. A genocidalist. It was he alone who gave the orders that caused 29 million people to die of starvation. Why? Because he ruled that the grain, which was ample to feed all of the people needing it in India, was not to go to India, but rather go to the United Kingdom and other countries such as Greece. Wasn't it Churchill who actually said, quote, I hate Indians. They're beastly people with a beastly religion. The famine was their own fault for breeding like rabbits, end quote. Kind of sounds like a lot of people supporting Israel today, doesn't it? The settlers. And uh, also, uh, when I was talking about uh, Iraq, and I didn't get to much on it, but the simple reality is that Iraq got independent in 1920, and Britain immediately started to kill anyone who disagreed with the policies. But the, how they killed them is unique. They used chemical weapons. Yes, on large amounts of people. In fact, the rule was, if you as an individual within a village or town complained about this, then every single person, man, woman, and child in the town was to be annihilated. And they did so to send a message to others that uh, we're going to exterminate everything within the walls of your community, including even the animals, as long as you complain. Well, how many towns and villages do you have to destroy before suddenly people realize, if I make any public demonstration, then we're all going to be killed? So understand that today you're dealing with the two largest concentration camps in world history, in Gaza and the West Bank. But they didn't start just yesterday. They've been there really since 1948. That was the progenitor of it. And that did not include the year that they expelled, by force or murder, 750,000 of the Palestinians. So it's easy to say a country without a people for a people without a country. Oh, but there were people in the country. And yet they overlook that today. I mentioned Algeria and how the French had occupied uh, Algeria for 135 years until 1962. And, uh, but how did Algeria get its freedom? Well, after it used the population and testing nuclear bombs that poisoned at least 42,000 then. Remember, radiation poisoning can take a long time to kill you. But just immediate effect was 42,000 Algerians. How many after that? Just like Agent Orange in Vietnam, which, by the way, for the French actually introduced. Uh, how many died years later? There are still birth defects today. And, uh, and yet they were more literate, they were more peaceful, 
In fact, I'm sure everyone in this audience knows that Ho Chi Minh was a great believer in our Constitution, was a fan of Thomas Jefferson, and wanted to design and implement a Vietnamese Constitution founded on our principles, and he tried to get our help. No, we didn't want that. And so we were only told the worst, and that's what led to the slaughter in Vietnam. But just remember, everywhere in the world where there's been a colony, there's been genocide against his people. I mentioned King Leopold, and I mentioned all the other Tanzania, uh, the genocide of the Bushmen in East Africa, Ghana, Togo, Cameroon, which before it was even handed to the French, Portugal, slave trade was, you know, what they made their money off of from Africa and plantations in Brazil and the Caribbean. The Portuguese explorers called uh, this whole process beneficial and capturing and enslaving natives and then taking them to plantations in the mines. If they didn't make it across the ocean, and a lot didn't, so be it. But I want to focus a little bit on America. Keep in mind that America at one time actually gave smallpox-infected blankets to native tribes, which spread it into their colonies, and they had no immune system to it. The Philippines, after 1998, we created the Spanish-American uh, War, and we summarily executed civilians and prisoners. We bur burned entire villages, and this was done by the U.S. Army and the Marines. So when we talk about supporting those who are the fighting for their freedom, we've never supported anyone in our history who fought for freedom, except our own beginning. But we support all the dictators. Just think of all the dictators we have supported around the world. And by the way, in Haiti, first and second cacao wars, or cacao wars, during the U.S. occupation, we occupied Haiti from 1915 to 34, and U.S. troops killed an estimated 15,000 civilians. Summary executions, rape, lynchings, burning of villages. Have you ever heard of a single person being held accountable? Of course not. And then those, the Canadians, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission established in 2008 refers in its final report to a cultural genocide perpetrated against indigenous peoples. It exposed the history of the 150,000 uh, Meridian and Inuit children placed in residential schools between 1874 and 1996 to, quote, civilize them. Australia forced the removal of Aboriginal children from their families for the purpose of assimilation and they wouldn't allow them to speak their native language or have any of their customs. By the way, the same was done. Oh, my goodness, I, I did that. Stopping the All-American Genocide Machine was one of my first efforts because my family on my father's side is Native American. Mother's side is Irish. And uh, I just wanted to re redo the history and show how heinous it was. But they would take Native American children onto these boarding schools. They're really miniature prisons. They would cut their hair off, and they would have them wear westernized clothes and would teach them English, 
And at no point could they engage in anything of their original culture. And then their the helicopters would fly over all the ceremonial uh, places in the local area of tribes and disrupt them constantly. But there's more. For example, I didn't get to Hawaii. The Hawaiian Islands were colonized by the United States in 1893, although it existed as an internationally recognized sovereign and independent state since November of 1843. In January 17, 1893, U.S. troops and a diplomat overthrew the government of the Hawaiian Kingdom. Now they were a colonized people. You don't think they allowed the people to go out there and do uh, dancing and enjoy this ocean and their tribal customs? Not at all. It was brutal. The native Hawaiians are an indigenous people by definition. And that's according to the United Nations. Didn't matter. A four-day uprising between January 6th and 9th, 1895, with an attempted coup d'etat to restore the monarchy and included battles between the royalists and the Republican rebels. And the queen of, uh, of Hawaii was placed under house arrest, tried by a military tribunal of the United States business-backed Republic of Hawaii. This was not our government. In fact, uh, Grover Cleveland was against this, but uh, the next person was not. And this was business people. And they convicted her and uh, of misprison of treason and misprisoned her in her own home. Yeah, so the United States' business class, working quietly with the government, took a sovereign nation, Hawaii, and took it for their own, purely for monetary reasons. And then on January 24th, uh, Lili Yuakatalani abdicated, informally ending the Hawaiian monarchy in its entire history. So since 1898, the U.S. has unlawfully imposed its laws over Hawaiian territory, which is the war crime of usurpation of sovereignty during a military occupation, like the Spanish-American War. In 1893, President Grover Cleveland acknowledged that the Hawaiian Kingdom was unlawfully invaded by Marines, which led to an illegal overthrow of the Hawaiian government. Didn't matter. Historically, the actual rebels who were involved in the overthrow of the Queen were Hawaiian who were not part of the United States government, but were supported by the American and European business class and the plantation owners who wanted to control all the island, all of its agriculture for themselves, paying nothing to the Hawaiian government. They were insurgents who renamed themselves the Republic of Hawaii and sought to annex the islands of the United States. Although Cleveland opposed the insurgents, President William McKinley aligned with the insurgents. In a letter from the nation of Hawaii to Hillary Clinton in 2010, it listed the United States government crimes. Did Hillary Clinton ever share this with the public? Did she or her husband ever apologize? One, instances of Hawaiians subject to intimidation, coercion, and threat of losing the state and federal grants and entitlements. 
perpetrated a gross and consistent pattern of violations of the most fundamental human rights of the Native Hawaiian people as recognized by the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights, perpetrated numerous and repeated violations of the 1965 International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination Against the Native Hawaiian People, and finally, deliberately and systematically permitted, aided, and abetted solicitation and conspired to commit the dumping, transportation, and location of nuclear, toxic, medical, and otherwise hazardous materials on Native Hawaiian national lands and has thus created a clear and present danger to the lives, health, safety, and physical and mental well-being of the Native Hawaiian people. Not a single thing was done. And why should it? It's a Clinton. What did you expect? But don't forget Puerto Rico. The U.S. military took control of Puerto Rico in October 1998. In December 1998, Spain signed the Treaty of Paris, ceding Puerto Rico and the Philippines to the United States, and relinquishing sovereignty over Cuba, which became a U.S. protectorate. Puerto Rico is one of the world's oldest remaining colonies. Yeah, it's a colony. I don't care what else you call it, the reality is it's a colony. Over 3 million U.S. citizens in Puerto Rico who have for decades been in a similar struggle to no avail. They don't have a senator or a House member from Puerto Rico. They're supposed to be represented. Yeah. Well, Puerto Rico's relations with the United States is rooted in a history of discrimination. The United States implanted an economy that destroyed the agriculture in Puerto Rico. In less than 20 years, 90 cents of each dollar that a Puerto Rican spent went to the United States. This made Puerto Rico one of the poorest countries in America, not far behind Haiti. In 1931, American pathologist Dr. Cornelius Rhodes, sponsored by the Rockefeller Institute, deliberately infected Puerto Rican citizens with cancer cells. Thirteen of the patients died. Are you aware of that? In a written document, Rhodes wrote, quote, Puerto Rico are the dirtiest, laziest, most degenerate and thievish race of men ever to inhabit the sphere. I have done my best to further the process of extermination by killing off eight and transplanting cancer into several more. All physicians take delight in the abuse and torture of the unfortunate subjects, end quote. Yes. Why isn't that discussed? But it won't be. But it's history, and it's the Rockefellers, and it's the Rockefeller Foundation. From 1941 to 1942, the U.S. Navy expropriated two-thirds of the Puerto Rican island, 33,000 acres, and commenced bombing exercises which continued for 55 years. Over this time, more than 22 million pounds of military and industrial waste was deposited on the island. The cancer rate on the island is 27% higher than in the mainland. Most of the elements and toxic compounds dumped in the island were arsenic, lead, mercury, cadmium, depleted uranium, which is never depleted, and napalm. In the late 1950s, the Puerto Rican women were used as experimentation in the making of the first birth control pill. The experiments were based on poor and working class women. These women were not told the pill was experimental and were not told the negative effects of the pill. Uh, what could it do to them? There was the murder of Dr. Pedro 
Campos. He was a prominent leader of the independence movement of Puerto Rico. And Albizu was imprisoned numerous times for seditious conspiracy against the United States. While in prison, uh, Albizu said he was the subject of human experimentation. In 1994, Bill Clinton's Department of Energy disclosed that human radiation experiments had been conducted without consent on prisoners in Puerto Rico all through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Anyone held accountable? Of course not. And I could go into Japan. Japan became a ipso facto colony under occupation after the war until the Treaty of San Francisco that went into effect April 28, 1952. During that time, uh, it was uh, everything was abolished as national religion, uh, Shintoism, and during the occupation, after the Japanese defeat, U.S. military established with U.S. public government a recreation and amusement association, which was a brothel industry to service U.S., Australian, British, and New Zealand troops. Yeah, well, we did that. Widespread rape by U.S. personnel is documented. And so it's, uh, it's gone on for a long time. But just a little history. And we are the people calling the shots and controlling everything in Ukraine, everything in Israel. Do you think that Israel would do anything without our approval and our support? Who makes the planes? Who makes the bombs? Who makes the missiles? Who provides the intelligence? The United States. So now we're going to go. I'm going to reverse the order. So uh, Kyle and Dylan, we're going to go to our first clip because I think people should hear this. Who is one of the most enlightened voices on international affairs in the world? Not Dr. Noam Chomsky. So he's going to give us an insight into why the United States, according to him, his words, the United States is the world's biggest terrorist. Now, following that, there's going to be another indictment by Noam Chomsky, the crimes of every president. I hope that you were already aware of this. If not, then consider this a day of learning because all the presidents and all the president's men and women have participated jointly and collectively in the colonization or post-colonization control and regime change and mass murder. Probably the worst of them is uh, Barack Obama. But, uh, you know, let someone hold Hillary's beer and Bill's beer. There's a lot of them up there. George Bush, right beside him. What a lot. And this is who you all vote for? <laughs> well, think again. Let's go to Professor Noam Chomsky now. This is a real education on who's behind this. And mind you, this interview was eight years ago. And he nailed what is happening today in Russia and Crimea and uh, in Ukraine. And he nailed what is happening in Israel eight years ago. Let's go to the clip. In terms of nuclear war, we see the prospect of this Iran deal. It's We're at a preliminary agreement. Does that provide you with a glimmer of hope that the world could potentially be a safer place? I'm in favor of the Iran negotiations, but they're profoundly flawed. Uh, there are two states that rampage in the Middle East, carry out aggression, violence, 
terrorist acts, uh, illegal uh, acts constantly. They're both huge nuclear weapon states, and their nuclear uh, armaments are not being considered. And who exactly are you referring to there? The United States and Israel, the two major rogue states in the world. I mean, there's a reason why uh, in international polls run by U.S. polling agencies, the main ones, uh, the United States is regarded as the greatest threat to world peace by an overwhelming margin. No other country's even close. Uh, in incidentally, it's kind of interesting that the U.S. media refused to publish this but it doesn't go away. Well, you don't hold the US, pres US President Barack Obama in very high esteem, but does this still make you think of him in slightly better terms? The no. fact that he is trying to uh, reduce the threat of nuclear well, war. Well, actually he isn't. He's just initiated a program, a trillion dollar program of uh, modernization of the uh, nuclear weapon system which means expanding the nuclear weapon system. That's one of the reasons why uh, the famous doomsday clock of the Bulletin of American Scientists has just a couple of weeks ago been pushed two minutes closer to midnight. Midnight is the end. It's now three minutes from midnight. That's the closest it's been in uh, 30 years since uh, the early Reagan years when there was a major war scare. Well, you, you mentioned, obviously, the U.S. and Israel in terms of Iran. Now, the Israeli Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu obviously doesn't want this nuclear deal to work at all, and he says... And it's interesting. We should ask why. Why? We know why. Iran uh, has very low military expenditures, even by the standards of the region, let alone the United States. Uh, it's a strategic doctrine is defensive. Uh, it's designed to hold off an attack long enough for diplomacy to set in. And uh, the United States and Israel, the two rogue states, do not want to tolerate a deterrent. Uh, no strategic analyst with a, a brain functioning thinks that Iran could ever use a nuclear weapon. Uh, if it even prepared to do so, the country would simply be vaporized. And there's no indication that the ruling clerics, whatever you think about them, want to see everything they have destroyed. Just one more question now on this issue, and this is from another member of our social media, and it's Morton A. Anderson. And he asks, do you believe that the U.S. would ever strike a deal that would be dangerous to Israel in the first place? The United States is carrying out constant actions which endanger Israel very seriously, namely supporting Israeli policy. Uh, for the last 40 years, the greatest threat to Israel has been its own policies. Uh, if you look back 40 years, say 1970, uh, Israel was one of the most admired countries in the world, respected, admired, you know, lots of favorable attitudes towards it. Now it's one of the most disliked and feared countries in the world. And the early 70s, Israel made a decision. They had a choice. They made a decision to prefer expansion to security. And that carries with it dangerous consequences. The consequences which were obvious at the time 
I wrote about them, other people did. If you prefer expansion to security, it is going to lead to internal degeneration, uh, anger, uh, opposition, uh, isolation, and possibly ultimate destruction. And by supporting those policies, the United States is contributing to the threats that Israel faces. Well, then, you see, well, that will bring me to the point of terrorism, then, because that is really a global blight. And, you know, some, and I think including yourself, will say that this is blowback for U.S. terrorist policy around the world. How far is the U.S. and its allies responsible for what we're seeing now in terms of the terrorist attacks around the world? Remember, the worst terrorist campaign in the world right now, by far, is the one that's being orchestrated in Washington. That's the global assassination campaign. There's never been a terrorist campaign at that scale. When you say global assassination campaign... The drone campaign. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what it is. Uh, over large parts of the world, the United States is systematically, publicly, openly I'm, not, I'm just nothing secret about what I'm saying. We all know it. Uh, it's uh, carrying out regular campaigns to assassinate people who the U.S. government suspects of intending to harm us someday. And indeed, it is, as you mentioned, a terror-generating campaign. When you bomb a village in Yemen, say, and you kill somebody, Maybe the person you were aiming at, maybe not. And the uh, other people who were in the, happened to be in the neighborhood. How do you think people react? They say, we're going to take revenge. You describe the U.S. as the leading terrorist state. Where does Europe fit into that picture then? Well, that's an interesting question. So, for example, there was recently a study, I think it was done by the Open Society Forum, of uh, the worst form of torture. Uh, rendition. Rendition means you take somebody you suspect of something and you send him off to your favorite dictator, maybe Assad or Gaddafi or Mubarak, to be tortured and then hoping that maybe something will come out of it. That's extraordinary rendition. The study uh, reviewed the countries that participated in it. Well, obviously the Middle East dictatorships because that's where they were sent to be tortured. Europe, most of Europe participated, England, Sweden, other countries. In fact, there was only one region of the world where nobody participated, Latin America, which is very dramatic. First of all, Latin America has now gotten pretty much out of US control. When it was controlled by the United States not very long ago, it was the world center of torture. Now, it wouldn't participate in the worst form of torture, rendition. Europe participated. If the master roars, uh, the servants cower. So Europe is the servant of the United States? Evidently. They're too uh, cowardly to take an independent position. Where does Vladimir Putin fit into this picture? He's painted as, well, one of the greatest global threats to security. Is he? Like most leaders, he's a threat to his own population. Uh, that's, and uh, he's taken illegal actions, obviously. 
but to depict him as a crazed monster who's suffering from brain disease and uh, has Alzheimer's and is, you know, a rat-faced uh, uh, evil creature, that's standard Orwellian f uh, fanaticism. I mean, whatever you think about his policies, they're understandable. Uh, the idea that Ukraine might join a Western military alliance would be quite unacceptable to any Russian leader. This goes back to 1990, when the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, there was a question as to what would happen with NATO. Uh, Gorbachev agreed to allow Germany to be unified Gary, can you hear me? and to join NATO. All right, listen, we're not going to have enough time for that second clip. That NATO would not expand right. one inch to the east. That was the phrase that was used. So Russia has been provoked. Well, what happened? NATO instantly moved to East Germany. Then Clinton came along, uh, expanded NATO right to the borders of Russia. Now there are uh, the Russian, the new Ukrainian government, the government after the overthrow of the preceding one, uh, the parliament voted, uh, I think, 300 to 8 or something like that, to move to join NATO. This but is, you can understand why they would want to join NATO. You can see why Petro Poroshenko's government would probably see that it's protecting his country. No, no, it's not protect. Crimea was taken away after the overthrow of the government, right? Uh, and... Uh, He's not protecting Ukraine, is uh, threatening Ukraine with major war. Uh, that's not protection. Uh, the point is, this is a serious a strategic threat to Russia, which any Russian leader would have to react to. That's well understood. If we look at the situation in Europe, though, there's also another interesting phenomenon that's taking place, because we're seeing Greece moving towards the east, potentially, with the Syriza government. We're also seeing Podemos, which is gaining power in Spain, Hungary also. Do you see that there is a potential for Europe to start shifting and aligning itself more with Russian interests in well, Europe? Take a look at what's happening. Hungary is a different situation yeah. entirely. Syriza came into office with, on the basis of a popular wave, which said that Greece should no longer subject itself to policies from Brussels and the German banks, which are destroying the country. I mean, the effect of these policies has, to, has been actually to increase Greece's debt relative to its wealth production. Uh, probably half of younger people are unemployed. 40% of the population is under the poverty line. Greece is being destroyed. Should their debt be written off? Sure, just like Germany's was. In 1953, uh, Europe wrote off most of Germany's debt, like that, uh, so that uh, Germany would be able to reconstruct from wartime damage. But then what about all the other European countries that Same have been... story. So you know, Portugal should have its debt written off, Spain have its debt written who, off, all who these... Is this debt? Who incurred this debt, and who is the debt owed to? The debt is mostly the response. In part, the, desk, the debt is, is, uh, was incurred by dictators. So in Greece, it's the fascist dictatorship, which the U.S. supported, that uh, incurred a large part of the debt. 
the debt, I think, quadrupled under dictatorship. That's what's called in international law, odious debt, need not be paid. That's a principle introduced into international law by the United States when it was in their interest to do so. Uh, much of the rest of the debt is the payments, what's, what are called payments to Greece, are being paid mostly to banks, German and French banks, which decided to, had decided to make extremely risky loans at very high uh, interest and are now being faced with the fact that they can't be paid back. Well, I'd like to bring in this question then from Jill Gribaldo, who says, how will Europe transform then versus the existential challenges it's facing? Because, yes, there's the economic crisis, but there's also a rise in nationalism. And he also describes the cultural fault lines which are beginning to be created across Europe. How do you see Europe transforming itself? Well, Europe has serious problems. Part of the problems are the result of economic policies designed by the bureaucrats in Brussels, European Commission and so on, uh, under the pressure mainly of the big banks, mostly German. Now, these policies make some sense from the point of view of the designers. Uh, for one thing, they want to be paid back for their risky and uh, uh, hazardous uh, loans and investments. Now, the other thing is that these policies are eroding of the welfare state, which they've never liked. Now, the welfare state is one of Europe's major contributions to modern society. The, the rich and powerful have never liked it. And in fact, this is eroding it. So good from their point of view. There's another problem in Europe. It's extremely racist. Mm -hmm. uh, I've always felt that Europe is probably more racist than the United States. It wasn't as visible in Europe because the European populations in the past have tended to be pretty homogeneous. So if everybody is blonde and blue-eyed, uh, you don't seem racist. But as soon as it begins to change, it comes out of the woodwork very fast. And that's a serious cultural problem in Europe. I'd like to end, because we're very short of time, with the question maybe, trying to end on a more positive note. And this is from Robert Light, and he says, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is a couple of things we've talked about. Uh, Latin American independence, for example. Now, that's of historic significance. And we're going to see it right now in the Summit of America's uh, meeting in Panama. In the recent hemispheric meetings, the United States has been completely isolated. It's a radical change from 10 or 20 years ago when the U.S. just ran it. In fact, the reason why Obama made his gestures towards Cuba is to try to overcome American U.S. isolation. It's the U.S. that's isolated, not Cuba. Uh, and uh, probably it'll fail. We'll see. The signs of optimism in Europe are Syriza and Podema. There is finally a popular uprising against the crushing, destructive economic and social policies that come from the bureaucracy and the banks. And that's very hopeful, should spread. Noam Chomsky, many thanks for being with me. Yeah. All right, let's just give you a, a, an addition to that, because I had lengthy discussions with the former finance minister 
of Greece. And there was a group out of Australia that was running a camp there uh, for refugees, wanted to know would I come over and help. And I said, of course, and I created a protocol uh, and tried to get some manufacturers to donate what would be one scoop of the whole meal so the refugees at least would have some way of sustaining themselves and then put them on the whole protocol. But that's a separate story. Anyhow, um, the finance minister said that the banks, and especially banks like Goldman Sachs, exploited uh, Greece's problem. And Greece was about 130% debt to the gross domestic product. They, and Ireland was not a lot better. France was not a lot better, nor Italy. Uh, Germany was the power base of all Europe and even had a stronger economy and greater gross domestic product than Russia. But then they started increasing the interest to help Greece out. And they were helping Greece out by paying the banks that were charging usurious rates to Greece 12%, 10%. Greece didn't have the money. So what they do? They did a form of what has been corruptly done by the International Monetary Fund. Uh, they, they give money to a company or country, but almost never goes to the citizens. It goes to outside contractors who are aligned with the International Monetary Fund. And they do what is called structural adjustment, where, well, okay, you can't pay back your debt, so we want you to cut all pensions of all employees by 50%. And they did. And now for the first time you saw people would work nobly and, and properly in their jobs as bureaucrats, whatever they were, independents. But now, instead of getting $1,400 a month, which they could live on, they were getting $700 a month. And because of that, inflation soared, the value of their currency diminished, and so they were caught literally in, a, in an un, un, undeniably bad place, all because of greed of bankers, including Wall Street. And so people go out and dumpster dive. Yeah, they would. Uh, uh, this is part of the documentary I did on uh, Poverty Inc., where people who had been two professors together, they could make out all right. But now with only half that and having to pay for everything, they found they had to sell furniture and everything else, all to support the greed of the banks. So just letting you know who's behind all this. I'm going to end today's program with something stated by George Orwell and see if this doesn't apply today. The minister of peace concerns itself with war, the minister of truth with lies, the minister of love with torture, and the minister of plenty with starvation. These contradictions are not accidental, nor do they result from ordinary hypocrisy. They are deliberate exercises in doublethink, and that's the entire American media and body politic today. That's why I voted for Ralph Nader. And look at where the world would be had all of you really geniuses out there on the left had voted for him. But you didn't, did you? We wouldn't have any of these wars. We wouldn't have any of these crises today. But that's another story. Thank you all for listening and have a nice day. Don't forget tonight, I'm going to do a commentary tonight. Positive solutions to those of you who are facing all kinds of crises at this moment. Financial crisis. What to do to stay solvent? What to do to stay above water? How not to be swept under with apathy and negativity from all that's happening? A whole hour tonight, 7 o'clock, 
just me and you on the Progressive Commentary Hour. Have a nice day, everyone.